Well, let's turn in our Bibles again to the Gospel according to John, chapter 18. And if you're using a church Bible, it's on page 1086, 1086. And uh, when, well, you're turning there, uh, let me explain that I didn't intend that to be the children's message this morning, but I discovered as I came in that there are some uh, copies, final copies, once they're gone, they're gone, uh, I hope not forever, of David Ellis's book, Nothing to Fear. Uh, let me suggest, they're free, by the way, but if you want them autographed, it's twice the price. Okay? Now, some of you may have asked David Ellis if there are copies of this book, and if you have done that, I think you should be given priority in getting it. So here's my suggestion, that if you have done that, honest, you know, crush your heart, hope to die, then before you get coffee, pick one up. And if you haven't asked for one but would like one, then after you've had your coffee, go and scratch each other's eyes out and get one. It's a fabulously good book. And once you've read it, write to the publisher and insist that it be republished uh, in a new edition. And public apologies to David Ellis because I did not ask his permission to drag him into the children's message this morning. But I know he forgives me. So John chapter 18 and beginning to read at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right... Why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. 
one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. If you're in that category of being an old person, you remember those black and white movies? I think they were mainly westerns where something would happen and then words would flash up on the screen and now back at the ranch. And so the way in which events that took place simultaneously were presented was in this chronological division. And you were meant to understand while this was happening, this also was happening. Uh, The Technology now is much more sophisticated, but uh, those of you who go to see movies uh, will know that the same kind of technique is used, and like most good ideas for dramatic storytelling, you find them often originally in the Bible. And there's an illustration here. Here is what's happening to Jesus, and then this is what's happening to Simon Peter, Here's what's happening to Jesus. This is what's happening to Simon Peter. And that storytelling technique is used for two reasons. One is to slow the action down, to help you to focus. And the other, of course, is to increase and heighten the tension because you're left wondering what was happening to Jesus while this was happening to Simon Peter. We've time this morning only to focus on Jesus, and God willing, next week we'll focus on Simon Peter. And I want us to try and understand what John is teaching us here, because he does something quite different from the other gospel writers. So much happens in this 24-hour period in Jesus' life, sometimes difficult to, to keep things separate from one another. But in the other three Gospels, all of the attention is on Jesus being arraigned and tried by Caiaphas. And Annas scarcely has a walk-on part. In John's Gospel, all the concentration is on Jesus being interrogated by Annas and Caiaphas scarcely even has a walk-on part. We are told of him only because of the reference to his father-in-law, Annas, and then because in verse 24, Annas then sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, and essentially that's the last we hear of him. So why does John do this? Well, There are probably several reasons, but one of the most important ones is this. Uh, You'll notice that Caiaphas is described as the high priest that year, verse 13. Annas, his father-in-law, had been high priest for about seven or eight years, earlier on in the century, about 15 years before this event took place. And he had been deposed by Pontius Pilate's predecessor. The really important thing to grasp is 
But in the Old Testament economy, a high priest is not deposed. A high priest dies. He is high priest for life. And so, although in the eyes of the Roman invasion army, uh, he was no longer high priest, in the eyes of the Jewish people, he was still the high priest. In fact, paradoxically, he was so much the high priest that five of his sons became high priests. His son-in-law became high priest. His grandson became high priest. And as John is obviously writing in his gospel to people who have some sense of the flavor of the Old Testament scriptures, I think the message would be fairly obvious. That in the other gospels, it is the official high priest who is interrogating Jesus. In this gospel, it's the real high priest who is interrogating Jesus. And not only the real high priest, but the high priest who has all the power. After all, it's his sons and his son-in-law who have become high priests. And you remember what has just happened uh, immediately preceding these events in John's gospel. What, what, what preceded John chapter 18? Answer, John chapter 17. What happened in John chapter 17? Well, it's a chapter that's often described as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Why is it described that way? Because he prepares himself for his sacrifice on the cross in exactly the same manner the high priest prepared himself for offering the great sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He consecrated himself personally to God, and then he consecrated his immediate family to God. And then he consecrated all the people to God. And those are the concentric circles that Jesus moves in in John 17. He consecrates himself to his Father. He consecrates his disciples to his Father. He consecrates all those who will come to believe in him through their word, including ourselves. He consecrates them too to the Father. And so what is being presented to us here, if we have eyes to see, is the true high priest God has sent for the salvation of men and women over against the bankrupt high priest who has failed to live up to God's commands and has despoiled the high priesthood of all its true spiritual power. And from one point of view, therefore, it looks as though it is the high priest Annas who is judging Jesus. But actually what John wants us to see is that it is Annas who himself is being judged by Jesus. So this is all set within the context of our Savior's high priestly ministry. And there are two things I want us to try and see that John underscores for us. The first seems incidental, but it's actually central. It's the way in which Jesus, the high priest, 
is bound. He is bound. He is not just captured and arrested. He is bound. And I say that's significant because John makes it significant. Uh, You'll notice in uh, verse verse 12, the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And then if you fast forward to verse 24, you read, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So the word bound provides the bookends of this story. This whole narrative takes place within the context of this central image, not just of Jesus as high priest, but Jesus as the high priest who has been bound. Now, why is that important? Well, again, you know, bound is bound. Unless you're saturated as John was saturated in the Scriptures. Because one of the things that John has already hinted to us is the importance of Psalm 118 to everything that takes place within this Passion Week. You remember how when Jesus had rode into Jerusalem, the people who came out to greet him had shouted out words from the 118th Psalm. And they're referred to in in John chapter 12. And then you may remember that the last thing that happens when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and in John's gospel he's just left that upper room, the last thing that happens before they leave the room is what? Well, what's the last thing that happens before we leave the room, before the benediction? We sing. And they sang. And we know what they sang because it was like Psalm 24, 7 to 10 at the end of a communion service. You know what you're going to sing. They always sang what was known as the Egyptian Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118. So the last song that Jesus and his disciples would be singing was Psalm 118. And so the Passion Week began with the people from Jerusalem calling out Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. During the week Jesus had cited Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The last words that he had been singing were Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, verse 27, we come as a kind of climax to these words. Bind the sacrifice to the altar. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And so you see, Psalm 118 is like the background music Um, the appropriate background music to the way John is telling us this story. And so it's not incidental that he actually emphasizes, he does emphasize it, doesn't he? Um, It's the way things are emphasized in Hebrew literature. 
Look, it's here, the first thing you see. Look, it's here, the last thing you see. And so John is saying to us, do you see what is happening here? Uh, The high priest thinks that he is judging Jesus. But what is actually happening is that God is fulfilling in Jesus the prophecies of the 118th Psalm. And although from the high priest's point of view, he is being bound as a prisoner, from Jesus' point of view, as the high priest, he is being bound because he is not only the high priest. He is the high priest who makes himself an offering for our sin. He is the one who gives himself in death to be our saviour. And so, as that background music plays, it's as though John is saying to readers with an eye to see, do you see how the message of the gospel is actually being played out here in the very events that touch Jesus' life? But you know, if you were someone who knew the Bible as John so obviously knew the Bible, when you thought about Jesus being bound, you would not only think back to the psalm he had just been singing, you would think back to an event in the Old Testament that was regarded by Jewish people as so significant. It had its own name. Like, what do you call the 25th of December? Uh, And when you think back to Jesus being born, you call Jesus being born Christmas. Well, nobody knew the word Christmas when Jesus was born. But everybody knows that as the first Christmas. And there was one event in the Old Testament that stood out, really stood out in the minds of Jewish people. Um, They had a name for it. It was called the Akedah. The binding. The binding of who? Well, the binding of Isaac. Remember Genesis 22? When Abram takes his son, his only son, as the text says, Isaac, because God has commanded him to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And uh, you remember, Abram is willing to sacrifice his own son in obedience to God, and at the last minute as he's about to kill his son as a sacrifice to God, the son in whom the promise of God has been embodied, God stays his hand and says, Abraham, you were prepared not to spare your own son, but I'm going to spare you that. Remember the words that Isaac used when they were climbing up the hill together? He said, Dad, we've got all that we need for the sacrifice, but we don't have, we don't have the sacrifice itself. And do you remember what Abraham said? He said, Son, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And that's what's happening here. This is the, this is the true binding not just of Abraham's earthly son according to the promise, but of the ultimate son according to the promise, who is none other than the Son of God. Indeed, Paul picks that up, you remember, in Romans 8.32. And again, the background to that is the binding of Isaac. When 
when God says, when, when Paul says, the wonder of the gospel is that God the Father did not spare his own son. He spared Abraham so that he could spare his own son. But he, he was able to do that because he was not going to spare his own son, but he delivered him up. And it's the language that's used throughout the Gospels of Jesus being delivered up to judgment and trial and eventually to the cross. And that's what's happening here. The, the background music is the 118th Psalm. The, the background imagery is the binding of Isaac. And so what is being presented to us here by John is not simply uh, a description of what happened, but written into the narrative is the significance of what happened. And that's what makes it a gospel. That Jesus was bound and died is not good news. It's not good news. It's actually a great tragedy. Humanly speaking, but that Jesus was bound and died to be the high priest who would make a sacrifice for our sins. That's good news. And John doesn't simply want to tell us what happened. And he has this great genius so immersed as his mind in the Old Testament scriptures, and that comes out pretty clearly in the book of Revelation. So immersed is his mind in the Old Testament scriptures that he's able to tell the story in such a way that the significance of what's happening becomes clear to us. So what we've got here is the way in which Jesus as high priest is bound. But the second thing here to notice is the way in which Jesus the high priest is questioned. Uh, he's going to Annas, not because Annas has the official power to deliver him over to Pontius Pilate, as Caiaphas will do, but because Annas is the power behind the priesthood and probably the person who makes the ultimate decision. And we find in John's Gospel, Jesus is arraigned before two different courts. He's arraigned before the religious court, represented here by Annas, He's arraigned before the civil court, represented here by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And each court brings its own charge against Jesus. But what needs to happen is that if Jesus is to be delivered over to the civil court, the religious court must find him guilty of a religious crime, and the civil court must find him guilty of a civil crime. And this is, a, this is a religious court. And I think it's fairly clear that what the high priest is seeking to do here is to elicit from Jesus testimony that will enable him to accuse Jesus of treason. And that charge will work in the civil court but also to try to elicit from Jesus words that will enable him to accuse Jesus of blasphemy because that's the charge that will work in the Jewish court. And that's why he asks him about his disciples 
Because what, what I think he's trying to get out of Jesus is information about his disciples and perhaps just the sheer number of those who were at least formally his disciples. Think of the vast crowd that welcomed him into Jerusalem so that he can be charged in the civil court with insurrection and therefore treason against Caesar. But the charge that will work in the religious court is the charge of blasphemy. And that's why he asks Jesus about his teaching. Because, of course, you remember his son-in-law had already decided what the verdict would be. He would be charged with blasphemy, and they would seek to have him executed. John's already told us that. I think that may be why he doesn't go on to tell us what happened in the court of Caiaphas, because he's already told us that they had, they had prejudged the issue. They had determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. They would try him for that, but in order to pass him on to Caesar, they would need to be able to accuse him there of treason. But first of all, they needed to accuse him of blasphemy. And you notice how Jesus responds. I wish there were time to go into this because it is very instructive how Jesus responds. First of all, John's already told us that a man's own testimony doesn't count in a Jewish court of law. You need witnesses. And so Jesus responds quite properly. I mean, this is an iniquitous and unjust situation. They've arrested him in the middle of the night. Everything about this smacks of the illegal. But you'll notice that he answers with complete calm. You need witnesses if you're going to try me. I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. I've taught openly. If you want to try me, do it the legal way. Bring in the witnesses. But perhaps even more significantly, Jesus not only answers him properly, he answers him wisely and shrewdly. And I suspect it's here that we can learn something from uh, Jesus. Because what he does here is a perfect illustration of those two unusual proverbs in the book of Proverbs, one after another, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Or I think the order may be, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. Well, what does that mean? It means this. And John's given us a hint of this when he said Jesus knew what was in men. That Jesus never answered questions so much as he answered questioners. And actually in a time when Christians begin to be intimidated and oppressed, that's a very important lesson to learn. To be able to see through the question to the questioner. And Jesus understands perfectly what's going on here. They're seeking, they're seeking to get him to say something that will enable them to find him immediately guilty of blasphemy and heave him off to Caesar. 
because if he's committing blasphemy, then almost by definition, he's liable to commit treason, make himself the king. And of course, that's the discussion that follows in the next chapter. But Jesus answers, Annas. And that's the point. That's one of the reasons I think Peter says, you remember in First Peter chapter 2, Jesus not only does this to be our Savior, he does this to be our example. And that's something I suspect Christians are going to need to learn to do more and more and more, to be wise as serpents, to be harmless as doves, always to pause and ask the question, what's behind this question in this person's heart? And how do I answer the heart? Because that's the really important thing the gospel answers. And it's all here in what Jesus does. And of course, the whole thing is a fulfillment of prophecy. There are so many prophecies of Christ's suffering run into this picture of Jesus being bound as he's brought to the high priest and bound as he's sent from the high priest, not only in the way he is bound, but in the way he is questioned. And you notice that Jesus' response evokes two very different reactions. Um, and there's a lesson for us here as well, because this is typically the way in which people react to the indwelling presence of Christ in the lives of his people. There is a response of open hostility, an expression of a violence of heart in rejection of Jesus. And there's also an expression of sophisticated hostility. And the tragedy of the situation is both the officer and the high priest assume they are the ones who are judging Jesus. And they don't understand that it's the one who is standing before them who is actually judging them. And that is expressed in the different ways in which their hostility to Jesus emerge. And it's still the same, isn't it? Uh, you may meet both of these, as it were, reincarnated, as it were, next week because of your testimony to Jesus, because of Jesus' presence in your life if you're a Christian. Violent hostility to this gracious Savior or subtle and sophisticated rejection. And it's all a fulfillment of what John had told us in the prologue. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. They preferred the darkness, and so they couldn't recognize the light. But John doesn't want to leave it there. He doesn't want us to leave it there. Because you remember how he adds, but to those who received him, to them he gave the privilege, the right of becoming children of God 
who were born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but had their eyes opened to see Jesus because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. You see, they want to find him guilty of blasphemy before the high priest's court. And the truth of the matter is that that's the crime of which they and we are guilty in God's court. That we've made ourselves the center of the universe. That we've listened to the tempter's voice. You can be as gods, but you need to rebel against the true God. And if that's where you are, then you're on the side of the officer and uh, on the side of the high priest. And this would be a great moment to come out of that darkness, to see that you're not judging Jesus, although you've thought ever since you heard him, you've thought you are his judge. And you read a passage like this and you realize all along you have been judged by Jesus. But this gospel is written because there's, a, there's good news for you that he is still waiting to be merciful to you, to bring you out of the darkness into the light, to bring you from death to life, bring you from the old life to the new life, as you see who he really is and trust him for all that he's done. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son. That's unimaginable to us that you would have done so much for the likes of us. We pray as we see Jesus walking not only through the gospel story, but walking out of the pages of the Bible towards us and speaking to us. We pray that you give us grace to receive him and trust him and to delight in him and to know that our sins are forgiven for his sake and that you give us new life. We pray this in his name. Amen.